There is no one like you. We're going to continue to understand and appreciate that statement even more this morning. As we get closer to Christmas, and as we get closer to the Advent season, that time that we prepare our hearts to remember just this amazing miracle that God himself <coughs> would put on flesh and live amongst us. So this fall, we've been tracing God's interactions with humanity, interactions that were guided by his deep desire to reconcile with us, to save us, to bring restoration to a relationship that was broken by us in the garden. And we've seen that all of these interactions that we've been taking a look at, recorded in the Old Testament, with the likes of Adam and Abraham and Moses, these covenants that we have seen, all foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ, the ultimate Redeemer, the ultimate Savior. And I've employed this imagery, if you like, of the artist who has a blank sheet and starts to scribe and starts to put on lines, and eventually a picture starts to become clearer and clearer. And finally, there's a masterpiece. The masterpiece of God's plan of redemption is Jesus Christ on the cross. And I reminded you last week of the passage of Scripture that sums up this whole fall, really. And that is, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. So here are just a few of the strokes of God's masterpiece. His interaction with Adam. He gave Adam and Eve this paradise, this perfect, perfect place. And he only required one thing of them, which essentially was that you would honor me. And the testing ground of that honor and that acknowledgement was a tree two trees of which they weren't supposed to eat. But even after they disobeyed him, there was this ray of hope that God extended in his interaction with Adam and Eve. And that was that there would be a solution to the problem that they had created. And that salvation would come through the offspring of a woman. And then we see with Noah, that even though he was imperfect, he had trusted in God, and he was saved. And so we see there that salvation will come through faith and faith alone, not from being perfect in and of ourselves, because we're not capable of that, but only through the grace of God and our faith in it. And then with Abraham... We start to get a clearer picture now. There's the strokes are all coming together, and we're starting to see that the salvation or the answer to the problem that we created in the garden is going to have to do with a descendant of Abraham would come from the tribe or the people of Israel. And then we took a look at the Mosaic Covenant, which is really the most comprehensive one and is the one that we referred to as the Old 
covenant. And we found there that salvation was going to have to come through someone who was better than us. Someone who could fulfill the requirements of the law, which spoke of the holiness, the expectations of God, the standards, the high standard that we could never reach. And that there would be a prophet one day. And he would be a prophet like Moses and that he would teach, yes, but he also would be a prophet like Moses because he would bring deliverance from slavery. And then last week, we took a look at salvation from substitution. And so we took a look at the law, the sacrificial system, and how in fact we knew, or it shows that salvation is going to come through death. And a substitutionary death. Where something or someone was going to have to be killed in order for the right, the wrong, to be made right. And so today we're coming to the end of the old covenants. And we're going to take a look at the Davidic covenant, or the covenant that God made with King David. Do you remember the words that Pilate wrote on the sign above our crucified Lord? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now Pilate's choice of words weren't haphazard. In fact, they were intentionally contentious. They were meant to be an insult to the people of Israel. As though the king of the Jews would be hanging in humiliation on a cross. And these words were contentious because the Jewish leadership had not adopted Jesus Christ as the king. They even said this in John 19, we read these words. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do, you know, they wanted him crucified. But they didn't want those words. They said, do not write the king of the Jews. In other words, they were saying, he's not our king. What they wanted him to write was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate said, well, what I've written, I've written. When you're the king, you can do that sort of thing. I've written it. I find it really interesting that the bookends of Jesus' life all have to do with kingship. As he hung on the cross at Calvary, there was a statement about kingship. And do you remember the words that came from Gabriel to Mary when she was had not conceived and was just a young woman? And Gabriel came to her and spoke to her about kingship. We read this in Luke, Luke 1. In the, sixth, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, 
to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named uh, Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And understandably, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now listen to these words. The bookends of Jesus' life, before even conception. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, if Mary actually heard anything after the words, you will conceive and give birth to a son, because I'm sure she, her head was sort of spinning like crazy. If she actually heard it, being a devout Jew, she would have automatically thought of the covenant that God had made with David hundreds of years before. And we find them in 2 Samuel 7, 4-17. Before we read them, I just want to catch us up, because the, the last time we were looking at history, we had Moses on the scene. Well, Moses was not allowed to go into the land of promise, but he was allowed to go to the border. And just before Israel, under the leadership of Jacob, went into the land of promise, Canaan, Moses died. And so Israel did go in and they possessed some of what God had promised to Father Abraham hundreds of years before. But Israel didn't obey the law. The law that was given through Moses. And so the conditional components of the covenant that God made with Moses and Israel didn't come to fruition. They were not realized. However, God's unconditional covenant to bless the entire world through the offspring of Abraham was still out there. And the faithful, the remnant, the few, held on to that promise that someday all of the world would be blessed from Abraham. Eventually, Israel cried out for a king, which was, I'm sure, extremely insulting to God because he was the king. He was their king. But they wanted to be like the Joneses next door. And they, so they wanted a king. And they cried out for a king, and, 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 and God conceded to that desire, and he chose Saul. And then Saul proved to be just like the Joneses king. And so he was rejected by God, and then God raised up David. And then David had a son, Solomon. And those were really the only three legitimate 
kings of the nation, the unified nation of Israel. And just one last thought before we read the covenant given to David. And that is that the Davidic age, or the time of, of King David's reign in Israel, is today still considered the golden age of Israel's history. And why was that? Well, because Israel at that time actually was under a king who acknowledged God and who sought to obey the law and tried to rule as a conduit of God, not as God himself, David. He understood why he was king. He understood that he was anointed to do that which God called him to do. And so Israel was a light to the nations but for a very short period of time. And so here we have David. We're going to read now that covenant that God makes with David in 2 Samuel. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent, with a tent as my dwelling. Remember, we looked at that the other day, the tent of meeting, which was part of the tabernacle, which just moved wherever they went. And, and God is saying, kind of interestingly, He says, "You know, it's good enough. You know, it's it's worked." But David really wanted to build him something because he loved God, and he really wanted honor, wanted to build something more substantial, more concrete. Wherever, God continues, wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any one of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And here's the covenant. Now, I will make you great, your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they have a home of their own, and no longer will be disturbed. Wicked people will not anymore oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with the ancestors, your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with a rod wielded by man, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before you, before me. Your throne will be established forever. Where have you heard those words before this morning? In the words of Gabriel to Mary, you're going to have a child. 
He will rule over a kingdom that will endure forever. But you're kind of puzzled, I'm sure, because you're thinking, well, if that, when, when God is speaking to David, if he's prefiguring or he's foreshadowing or he's talking about Jesus, what's that stuff in there about when he does wrong, that I will discipline him? Jesus never did anything wrong, right? He was perfect. He was sinless. And so we need to look at a concept that we've talked about before. It's called prophetic telescoping. Fancy name. But this is basically what it means. Prophecy in the Old Testament often had a dual meaning. Now some people say, oh, dual meaning. Oh, that means that they're contradictory. No, they're not contradictory. It just means that there's a near future <coughs> meaning, and there's a far future meaning. And so we have God, when he speaks to people in the Old Testament, quite often there is an immediate application of what's being said. But there's also a long-term application that we find out later on, like we as people looking back with our 2020 vision from 2018 can look back and say, oh, he also meant that. And that's what's going on here in the covenant that God gives to David. He's talking about Solomon. Yes, because Solomon would be the king who would make the tabernacle and, and build a permanent home for God, right? And Solomon would also be the sinful king who would be disciplined by God. And it was not Solomon's kingdom that endured for eternity. And that's the thing that has to, you start to say, well, there has to be a future meaning to this because he's talking about eternity. And it's not like, you know, Solomon's kingdom, reign, would, would reign, he would reign forever. He died. So, God in this prophecy through Nathan in speaking to David and making a covenant with David is talking about a future king who would literally reign forever. God promises David that his kingdom would endure forever. And that's so... When Mary hears these words, you're going to have a child, and he's going to reign over a kingdom that's going to last forever. That prophecy of Nathaniel, of God, through Nathaniel to David, is coming to mind. And here she is, living in a really sad caricature of a nation called Israel that essentially has been used and abused for centuries and at present is under the thumb of Rome. And she hears these words. You are going to give birth to a king who's going to have a kingdom that's going to reign forever. Now, this Christmas, some of you will undoubtedly, because it just seems to be part of Christmas, will undoubtedly go to hear a performance of Handel's Messiah. 
And all of us are going to hear it on radio, parts of it. And we're going to hear a lot about Messiah. We even sang about Messiah today. Jesus, Messiah. And the association of the term Messiah with Christmas goes back to this covenant with, that David made with, with, that God made with David. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one or the chosen one. And each one of the three legitimate kings of the unified, singular nation of Israel, each one of them was anointed. Anointed by God for his service, to serve his kingdom, his holy nation. And so, Saul, David, and Solomon were all anointed by God's prophets, to serve as king of God's holy nation. And since Solomon, the nation of Israel split. The majority of it basically just dispersed, never to come back to its greatness again. But God continued Israel so that even today we know that there is an Israel. But we also know that there's a future for Israel. And so, after Solomon, those words that were given to David still hung in the air. Like an unfulfilled dream. They were out there. That God would give David a son. Or from David's line would come a son who would be a king who would reign forever. And so this is where we get the concept of the longing for the Messiah. Israel was longing for the Messiah when Jesus came around. Israel was waiting for that next anointed one, the fulfillment of David's covenant. The Messiah. Jesus was very clear. He said, I'm the Messiah. <laughs> he was not in any way wishy-washy about that. He revealed that first to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. We read in John 4. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes. He'll, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of the covenant made with David. I am the anointed one who's going to reign over a kingdom eternal. Jesus was very clear about it. And Jesus knew that he was a lightning rod in regard to that particular issue. He knew that his life and his mission would be a stumbling block for the Jews. He knew that his concept of Messiah, what he described as Messiah, the anointed king who would reign eternally, the fulfillment of the covenant with David 
he knew that it was contentious because what he was promoting was not what the Jews were looking for. He knew that his life would put uh, pit mothers against daughters and sons against fathers. He said, I didn't bring, come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. This is trouble. Because people are not going to understand what I was saying to David when I made that covenant with him. Israel, having been ruled over, having been oppressed for centuries, was logically looking for the anointed one, the Messiah, to come and be a king, a, an earthly king, who could bring, at the very least, Israel back to that great golden age of David. As a matter of fact, until Jesus is the very end of his life, people were relating to him that way. Remember Palm Sunday, John 12, we read, the next day the great crowd had come for the festival, that's the Passover, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They, they took palm branches and went, went out to meet him, said, and they were, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What did they say? Blessed is the King of Israel. They were anticipating, they wanted Jesus so much to be that long-awaited Messiah, to be a king who would come into Jerusalem, raise up Israel and defeat the Romans, and start to build what they had envisioned of God's promise to David. But then we see Christ before Pilate in his mock trial. And the Jews, the Jewish leaders, are working hard on Pilate because they don't have the authority to crucify and they want Jesus dead. And so they're working him, trying to get him to crucify Jesus because they can't. And he goes back in and he's not finding anything <laughs> that's crucifiable. And he goes back in and he has this really interesting discussion with Jesus. Pilate then, we read in John 18, went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, like, insulted. Am I a Jew? Your own people, chief priests, handed you over to me. What is it you've done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And so we start to see this divergent, distinct views of the Messiah. The Jewish nation hoping for something that they thought would bring peace and would be the ultimate. Israel, like unto the days when David was king. And Jesus, about to do something that was exponentially greater than that. 
He was building a kingdom that wasn't bound by this earth. That wasn't bound to an individual king who would live life and die. But a king who would live eternally. His mission was so much greater. Christ explained to Nicodemus the requirements of being a citizen in the kingdom that is not of this world. How do you become a citizen in a kingdom that's not of this world? And he said to Nicodemus, who was a, a genuine seeker of truth, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Unless they are born again. Citizens would need to be reborn, made new, would be new creations. Not bound by this earth. Not bound by history. Not bound by the frailty of these bodies that are decaying or this world that is decaying. But the citizens would be fit for a kingdom that would reign forever. And so now we have the masterpiece almost complete. Jesus Christ, it's becoming very clear that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the covenants. Jesus Christ was both man and God. The seed of the woman. Jesus Christ brought us salvation by faith alone. Jesus Christ, we look at his ancestry, which is recorded in the Gospels. Importantly, Boringly, yes, but importantly, his genealogy is there. We want you to know that he came from Abraham. He's a descendant of Abraham. We want, and, and, and then the Mosaic, Jesus Christ fulfilled the Mosaic covenant. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He was greater than any other human, and therefore he was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, the perfect death that would be required for us to be saved. And then we see that salvation will be through the descendant of David and that he would be a king and that he would rule over an eternal kingdom. Salvation would not be temporal. Salvation would address the underlying motivation of all of the covenants and that was reversing the effects of the fall in the garden. The advent, this advent, we're going to conclude our study of the covenants by looking at the best covenant. The new 
and the last covenant. The new covenant. Because Jesus Christ is the one who mediated or brought in this new covenant. And we're going to take a look at how it was related to the old covenants and what it means for us today. I just want to close with a passage from Hebrews where the writer writes, But in fact, the ministries, ministry that Jesus had received is superior to theirs, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. And we're going to take a look at the covenant that God made with not Abraham, Moses, David, Noah, with you. God made a covenant with you. And it's the new covenant. And it's the superior covenant. It's built on better promises. It has so much to offer. And it's the last covenant required. And it will bring salvation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you don't leave anything to chance or mishap or consequence, but that you are purposeful in bringing about our salvation and that you were willing to play an integral role, a sacrificial role to bring it to fruition. And so as we look to Advent and we look to celebrating your coming, and as we consider the covenant that you came to usher in, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us grasp how rich and profound, how wonderful it is to be a part of your covenant family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. Have a great day.